This is an ABC podcast. and good morning. I'm Eggy Dubol and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Hope you've had an awesome weekend. Welcome to your Monday edition of Pacific Beat. What's on the show today? Well, Wall to Valu, government switch allegiances from Taiwan to China. You can read my lips. I will not make any slightest change. There is no need even to look at that issue right now. And serious allegations of human rights abuse within the Australian Defence Force. To promote someone who's been accused of torture where those allegations haven't been investigated, you're potentially putting someone in a position of power over other people where they may continue to allow torture and other cruel and degrading treatment to happen. And what significance does Waitangi Day hold for our Pacific communities in Aotearoa, New Zealand? More on those stories shortly. Again, I'm Aggie Tupou and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, recently elected MPs in Tuvalu are still waiting in their constituencies before they can make their way to the capital, Funafuti, to vote in a new Prime Minister. Despite not having a government in place, the Pacific nation has found itself in the middle of a diplomatic arm wrestle between Taiwan and China. It's one of a dwindling band of countries around the world which still recognises Taipei rather than Beijing. But as Stephen Jejitz reports, there's mounting speculation that soon could change following a switch by another Pacific Island country. Last month, Nauru created global headlines when it ditched Taiwan and recognised China instead. Now all eyes are on Tuvalu, another Pacific Island nation with vast sea territories but a small population, to see if it will do the same. Taiwan's chief representative to Australia, Douglas Shear, sounds relatively confident that won't happen. According to our analysis, we are quite confident that the bilateral relations will remain solid. But that assessment is about to be tested because Tuvalu has just held an election and an election can be a catalyst for a diplomatic switch. Tuvalu's former Prime Minister lost his seat. One of the frontrunners to replace him has said he wants to review ties with Taiwan. But another frontrunner, former Prime Minister Enele Sopoanga, has told CNA Taiwan he's rock solid behind Taipei. You can read my lips. I will not make any slightest change. There is no need even to look at that issue right now. Douglas Xu says while China has been spreading disinformation into Valu and trying to lure politicians to its side, Mr Sapawanga is not isolated and Taiwan's position in Tuvalu remains strong. Out of uh, the 16 newly elected uh, members, majorities of those uh, members, we have a very solid friendship. The diplomatic jousting between Taiwan and China in the Pacific might seem confusing, but at its core is a battle for international legitimacy. China claims Taiwan as its own territory and is intent on isolating it diplomatically. Pacific analyst from the Lowy Institute, Mihai Sora, points out that Beijing's convinced both Solomon Islands and Kiribati to flip just four years ago, and Taipei now only has three Pacific allies remaining. As Taiwan's diplomatic allies diminish in number, there is a degree of of pressure on those countries that still recognise Taiwan 
at least to reconsider what's the best avenue. As for Australia, it might prefer Taiwan to maintain a diplomatic stake in the Pacific, but it's been scrupulously careful not to wade into any public debates. Mr Sora says the federal government's main worry is not diplomatic recognition, but what might follow. How would China leverage the momentum, the political momentum behind the flip what new deals do we see on the table? Do we see another security deal on the table, for example, as we saw between China and Solomon Islands? Another reason why many eyes will stay fixed on Tuvalu in the coming weeks. And that's ABC's foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jidgets. Pacific Beat. Now to the Cook Islands, where the Deputy Prime Minister and two former high-level government officials have been found guilty of misusing $70,000 of taxpayers' funds. Robert Tabaitao and his co-accused will be sentenced on March 21st in a case that has sent shockwaves across Cook Islands politics. For more on this story, we are joined by the editor of Cook Islands at News, Rashnel Kuma. With that, I say good morning, Rashnel. Hey, Kirana, uh, uh how are you, Angie? Yeah, thank you very much for joining us this morning, Rashneel. I mean, look, let's start. Before we get into the reaction, though, to the sentencing, can you maybe give us a bit of a background of this case? Like, what exactly is the Deputy PM being convicted of? Okay, so uh, the uh, former Deputy uh, Prime Minister, Robert Tepetau, he faced three charges of using a document to obtain pecuniary advantage and one charge of conspiracy to defraud. And in his uh, conviction, uh, the, the Chief Justice Patrick Keane on Wednesday last week, which was January 31st here in Kukalis, he uh, convicted uh, Tapaita of all the four charges. Uh, and the charges go back in 2021. Uh, that's when he was initially charged with, uh, I believe, just a conspiracy to defraud charge before uh, further investigation into the matter, which resulted in other three charges. Uh, so, yeah, so that's that's where the whole thing started. Uh, Setavetau was the minister for ICI, and he was also the minister for uh, the National Environment Services. Those two ministries, former heads, are the, are the, are the co-accused who were also convicted of uh, several charges. Uh, Rashni, are you aware of what those funds were used for in particular, though? I understand the amount is 70000 but what was it that he was actually trying to use it for? There was, I think, uh, there was several, there was uh, during the trial, which went for four weeks, uh, which was in July last year, there were several um, um, elements or several areas where it was used uh, from either airfares or, you know, paying allowances, and, you know, for bereavement and uh, paying for food and paying for hotel and all this uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, expenses. So those were basically some of uh, which amounted to $70,000 in total. Which, again, does that equate to it being more of a personal use or was it used under uh, use for the office? The, the defense obviously was that they thought that they had the power or the authority to, you know, uh, to uh, use those funds. But obviously, after investigation, uh, the authorities found otherwise. They they felt that it was uh, uh, the abuse of office or abuse of their position to allow those fundings, uh, either for either personal gain or was it for uh, or for other people that you know they they paid. 
their belief and their defense obviously was that they were entitled to use those funds uh, under their authority but uh, obviously after the court ruling it was found that they were not and uh, hence they were convicted mm. i'm assuming that they were wanting to plead not guilty but what has what did the court say in the ruling so uh, basically the court obviously uh, uh, it's said that uh, the Chief Justice said that uh, the funding that were used, um, uh, they found that it wasn't uh, in accordance to the positions they were. They didn't have the power to use those fundings. And, uh, um, and yeah, and uh, they had misused their, their power. Uh, it, 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 they were not supposed to use this funding for the reasons that they gave. Mm. Uh, therefore, obviously, uh, the, the conviction was uh, uh, given. Rashnil, are you aware uh, when they will be sentenced and with the sentencing, what are the implications of that? So uh, with Tapai Taos, obviously, uh, the sentencing is 21st of March and uh, uh, Tapai has been found guilty of offences that are punishable for a term of more than a year. Uh, so that's all we know at the moment. Uh, and it will be seen on uh, the sentencing day whether he will get custodial sentence or not. Mm. Does that mean he would possibly be disqualified from office? Like, what then will happen to the deputy prime minister's seat? So he's so so he it's, it's already gazetted. So he's no longer the deputy prime minister. The seat has been declared vacant as of February second by the speaker of the parliament, Taitura. He has announced the seat uh, is vacant, ordering the chief electoral officer to conduct preparations for by-elections for the Tonga River or pending seat. So as per the uh, the Electoral Act, uh, I believe uh, there is a 60-day period within which the by-election should be held. So we should be seeing a by-election for that seat in the next two months. So within the next two months. Within the next two months. Awesome. What then is the impact on Mark Brown's government itself? So, uh, uh, with the Tapaitao seat now declared vacant, uh, uh, the Cook Islands Party-led coalition government uh, has uh, 14 seats in a 24-member parliament, uh, which is still uh, uh, a majority by two seats. However, there are three independents. So, it will be interesting to see how things go. Uh, at the moment, uh, the uh, the Prime Minister has released a statement um, and he has accepted uh, uh, the the ruling and he has also uh, said that uh, this ruling demonstrates the integrity of the judicial, judicial system and that no person is above the law and uh, our system of checks and balances has not been compromised. And, and he has said that the party has accepted and will abide by the court's decision. So uh, as it stands, uh, the Kukalis party-led coalition government still has a majority with 14 seats. Uh, and um, uh, and the by-elections, uh, which will be conducted within uh, in a couple of months or within two months, will decide which way the seat goes. But uh, even if it goes to the opposition, uh, and if the CIP party coalition a government is able to maintain their three independents, they will still be in government. They will retain their, mm. their, their majority. Is there likely to be an appeal, though, or is that not possible? Uh, according to the lawyers of all three uh, who have been convicted, including uh, the former Deputy Prime Minister, uh, 
they they are looking at the options. So the appeal has not been ruled out. So obviously, it's hundred page judgment. So there's so much in that. You know, there's so much uh, to read basically on you know the whole basis of the judgment and how they they came about. Um, yeah, so they they will decide. Uh, I think the uh, the defense has has been given maybe I think a week before the sentencing to decide whether they will appeal uh, or not or what are their submissions. Uh, but uh, so far we haven't had anything from them whether they are going to appeal. At the moment they're still you know looking through the documents and seeing what they will decide next. And of course the unfortunate is that uh, Tabaitel. Uh, his wife has also been charged uh, with alongside um, Diane Charlie Puna, who has also been found guilty. What do you think their sentencing will look like? So, so that's now Puna and Diane Charlie Puna, husband and wife. Yes. Who, where the uh, the husband now Puna was the director of National Environment Service, and Diane Charlie Puna was the secretary of uh, in, uh, the Infrastructure Cook Islands. Both ministries were under Tapaitau at the time, and uh, they were terminated in I understand in July 2021, and investigations uh, got underway. And I think they were charged together with Tapetau, uh, initially charged together with Tapetau on uh, in October 2021. Uh, and uh, yet they, Napuna faces, um, faced, uh, I think, 22 charges of using a document to obtain pecuniary advantage and one of conspiracy to defraud and one of uh, uttering a forged document and five charges of forgery. Dan Charlie Puna, uh, she faced seven charges of using a document to obtain pecuniary advantage and a charge of conspiracy to defraud, to which she entered a guilty plea on June 1, 2023. So obviously the uh, I said the, the the charges look similar. So obviously it's a minimum of one year prison sentence that the charges they carry. Uh, and uh, we will know uh, uh, on, I guess, um, March 30, um, 21st what uh, what term or mm. what sort of uh, sentencing they get. Rashnil, I mean, uh, this obviously isn't a good look for the government, but more so, what has been the public's reaction to this case? Because, of course, this is taxpayers' money. Yeah, so, I mean, this it, it has been going on for uh, quite some time. And uh, me, I, I assume you must be aware, or the, or the listeners might, those who have been following this might be aware that uh, Tapaitau uh, has been suspended twice during this time and reinstated twice as Deputy Prime Minister. First, when, he's, when the charges came about in 2021, and then he was reinstated again just before the elections where he retained his pending seat. And then he he was suspended again in 2023 when the uh, uh, when the trial started, and uh, and then he was reinstated again, uh, I believe, before the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I mean, um, obviously, it's um, people are fully aware of this. There has, I guess, based on social media comments, there are supporters who still believe that you know he had within his rights to spend that money. Uh, and there's others who there are others who have been quite critical of uh, of this and have called out uh, the government, you know, to tighten up their uh, their systems and to make sure that you know. Uh, people who uh, misuse the funds or misuse their position are taken to task. Uh, 
if any, the reflection we might have, if there was a large number of people who believe that uh, you know the government uh, is not doing its job, it would have reflected in the elections in 2021, uh, sorry, 2022, the elections saw the CIP still winning 12 seats and they were able to get the support of three other independent MPs and you know um, uh, form government again. So it's a mixed views, uh, uh, and some people are thinking that you know they were well within their rights to you know use those fountains, while others were thinking that you know they're happy with finally there is judgment which has found them guilty. Mm. Uh, and that is Rashneel Kuma, editor of Cook Island News. Rashneel, we thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Amnesty International says the Australian Defence Force has a responsibility to investigate allegations of human rights abuses made against a Fijian military officer it recently appointed as a deputy commander. The ADF announced the appointment of Colonel Ben Naliva last week to the Australian Army's 7th Brigade. But allegations have since emerged, first reported by the Australian newspaper, that Naliva was involved in torturing government opponents following the 2006 coup. A 2011 report by a UN special reporter details allegations that Naliva was involved in a serious assault on a Fijian businessman that left him bleeding and unable to walk. Reporter Mackenzie Smith spoke to Amnesty International's Pacific researcher, Kate Schutze. It's very easy to forget that Fiji has come only recently out of a very dark period in its history where there was no accountability for military, police and prisons, torture and cruel and other degrading treatment. So as Amnesty, we've documented a pattern of this occurring, particularly against um, political opponents, journalists, um, students, other activists um, from after the 2006 coup. Um, And there was just a huge void where they weren't investigating these claims or because there were no independent systems in place to even investigate them, people were too fearful to come forward and report those abuses that had happened to them. So what we're seeing now is that people are more comfortable talking about this because things are starting to change within Fiji. But there is a responsibility on the Australian government here to ensure that it appoints credible people. These are untested allegations against someone, but they're very serious allegations. So the allegations of torture themselves have not been independently or appropriately investigated as yet. And absolutely, because they are such serious allegations, because there are several um, victims involved here, not just one case, um, this should be taken very seriously. How concerning is it uh, that Colonel Naliba has been given such a senior appointment in the ADF and what is the ADF's responsibility to look into the veracity of these claims? Well, I mean, I think there is an obligation here because these investigations haven't been through any kind of um, scrutiny or process before. I mean, I do want to say that people have the right, um, you know, 
to a fair assessment of those claims. Um, but, yeah, these are very serious allegations raised by several people. It's, um, you know, almost common knowledge uh, who the individuals are behind many of the cases of torture that have happened over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, you know, it's a small community. Everyone knows each other, um, you know, and there is this climate of fear in speaking out about it. But I think, you know, we've got this position now where absolutely there needs to be appropriate vetting processes because, you know, the message that it sends to promote someone who's been accused of torture, which where those allegations haven't been investigated, that's huge. You're potentially putting someone in a position of power over other people where they may continue to allow torture and other cruel and degrading treatment to happen. So I think that the obligation here is on the Australian government to stop and prevent future acts of torture, and in doing so, that's where their obligation kicks in to make sure they're hiring the right people, that they've got the right systems in place um, to do that. But, yeah, the, the, there's very serious allegations here. I'm not sure if you've seen the video of um, Sam Spate, but it's quite harrowing when he talks of that. Certainly, it's not the only case that we've documented where very serious, very degrading sexual assault of these um, people have happened. And it's not really just one person that was a bad apple. Uh, it was the whole system was bad in Fiji for a number of years. There was constitutional immunity. The courts weren't independent. Um, you know, you had a prime minister who was a former commander of the military. So people didn't have confidence in that system when things went wrong and when these abuses happened. So I think all of that context is very relevant here and is something that needs to be taken into consideration. Like the Australian um, Defence Force can't just go, oh, well, he was never charged or convicted of any crime. I don't think that's a sufficient threshold. This person is in a position of power where that could happen again. And so ultimately, um, yeah, the Australian government has that responsibility to prevent torture as well. You mentioned earlier that um, you, you're seeing more people in Fiji come forward with allegations of human rights abuses. Are you seeing much change in terms of uh, the Fiji government's response to these? I think there's been a very obvious um, change in direction with the new government in terms of talking about accountability. Um, but we've seen very early on with the change of government that there was still some concerning and perhaps politically motivated arrests of opponents and detaining people for a long time over what they put on social media. So it takes a while to change an institution like the police force when for years they've been told you're out there to do X, Y, Z, which is generally intimidating and harassing opposition, right? So, um, you know, that change is going to take some time. And that's Amnesty International's Pacific researcher, Kate Schutze, speaking there with Mackenzie Smith. Stay tuned, because up next, we've got your news wrap with producer Carl Evans. Newsroom 40. Hosted by me, Sam Wax. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today and look forward to the next-gen Nisian footy stars. Nisian footy. 
Indonesian footy. Monday afternoons at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Good, good morning. Yes, it is that time where we head around the region just to get the latest. And of course, that's always brought to us by our producer, Carl Evans. With that, good morning, sir. How was your weekend? It was very well, Aggie. A uh, bit of sport, bit of swimming in the beach the yesterday as well. Yeah, it was it was a hot one, wasn't it? It was. That's probably the first time I've ever experienced heat here in Melbourne. I think we were sitting at about, was it close to 40, maybe? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, thirty nine or something. It can be a bit of a myth sometimes the uh, the heat here, but it does it does get hot. Yeah, the aircon was my best friend in the weekend. That's for sure. <laughs> okay, let's get into these stories. Uh, interesting enough, a firm has been given the green light to explore the possibility of reopening Panguna Mine in Bougainville. Is that right? That's right. So uh, the Bougainville government has awarded Bougainville Copper Limited a five year extension on its exploration license, so it can attempt to one day potentially bring that mine back online. So the extension was awarded at a ceremony last week, and it is it is a big deal. With uh, President of Bougainville saying that it was a high impact project, uh, and the license would potentially pave the way for a complete redevelopment of that project. Um, it's still one of the world's largest known copper deposits, and it's believed to still hold about 5.3 million tons of copper. So it would move the needle in a huge way economically if it does ever get back up and running however it does have a dark past um you know as 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 everybody uh, well knows it closed down in 1989 after protests over the mine turned into a civil war uh, that killed nearly 20,000 people uh environmental impact uh, and issues over land rights were central to that conflict so yeah look very important that all the work is carried out in a clear and and transparent way and uh, and they dot their eyes and, and cross their t's absolutely so as you say about the dark past but does the company, though, have an actual good reputation in Bougainville? Well, they say they've been working to resolve differences uh, since a bid for a previous licence was refused back in 2018, and they say that uh, last week marked the successful culmination of those joint efforts. They also have a well-established presence in Bougainville. Obviously, they're, they're, they're named, <laughs> um, they're the company's named after Bougainville, and have a strong and have strong community relations. So, look, I guess uh, time will tell, but uh, yeah, I guess hopefully that provides a, a solid foundation foundation, you know, for future success. Yeah, as you said, time will tell. Uh, We head to medics on the Samoan island of Savai. They've kept a pregnant woman alive uh, after she missed the ferry to Apia for treatment. My gosh, what's happened there? That's right. So local medical staff have saved a a pregnant woman with complications uh, and they've saved her from losing her baby and potentially her life after the ferry that was meant to take her uh, to Apia for further treatment uh, failed to turn around and, and pick her up. So this is reported by the Samoa Observer, and apparently local doctors made the decision to send her to Apia on the 2 p.m. boat, uh, and had called the wharf in advance um, to, to say that she was coming, asking the ferry to wait. However, when they arrived, uh, the boat had already had already left, and despite being only a few minutes away, refused to turn around. So that's meant the ambulance had to take the woman back to the hospital she was originally in, uh, where she had to wait for another two hours uh, for the next ferry. Now, luckily it all ended well, but according to medical staff, this actually wasn't the first time uh, that this had happened. That's not a good thing to hear, but I'm wondering, has the ferry made comment on this matter? Well, uh, according to the final update of, of the article, attempts had been made to seek a comment uh, from Samoa Shipping Corporation, um, but those attempts were made unsuccessfully, so no at this point. But um, 
but yeah, it doesn't doesn't give you give you much hope if, if if that sort of thing happens. I suppose, especially if you're wanting to give birth. My goodness, I hope she is all right though. Uh, well, we head to sport now. PNG's NRL bid. We've spoken about this quite a bit. Is about to become a hot topic in Australian Parliament again. Why is that? Yeah, so P, uh, PNG PM James Marape will deliver a parliamentary address uh, in Canberra this week, where it's very much expected he's going to continue that campaign drive for a team. Now, according to the Sydney Morning Herald, the ARL Commission will make a final call on the expansion uh, of the of the of the expansion of the league mid, midway through this year sometime and we know Anthony Albanese has been a big driver of that bid but it remains to be seen if things have changed following the uh, the deadly riots that were held last month. Um, they raised obvious issues of safety and stability in the country, uh, and there's still challenges uh, to do with logistics and recruitment and, and player development of the project and, and things like that. So Marape is also expected to raise the issue of funding for the bid, uh, which is reported to be around $600 million over 10 years. Uh, so it's not cheap. So, yeah, it's going to be very mm. interesting to see what happens. Uh, but is PNG still likely to be the full-time base, though? Um, yes. So according to the article, uh, which has quoted the CEO of the bid, Andrew Hill, a PNG team with an Australian base for an initial period uh, is the cornerstone of the proposal. So I've heard conflicting things about that Australian base. Can seems to be the, the name that pops up more often than anything else. Um uh, and, and Sydney Morning Herald has quoted uh, Mr. Hill as saying Cairns is the preferred destination for that. But, but yes, to answer your question, a standalone PNG team is the preferred option, not a team mooted in any other Pacifica links okay. and not a team attached to any other existing clubs such as the Brisbane Tigers or the North Sydney Bears or anything like that. Well, we will definitely keep our eyes and ears on that story. Uh, Kyle, as always, thank you very much for bringing our news wrap for this Monday. Thank you, Aggie. Hi, I'm Sayuli Salamasinovan Raiki, and I invite you to come with me to explore how our Pacific cultures have evolved with the changing times in a new show, Culture Compass. You'll meet people who are passionate about keeping traditions alive, passing them down to the next generation while adapting old ways to the present. Culture Compass. Tuesdays at 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie the Ball. We head to Aotearoa where, over the weekend, thousands of people have taken part in a long protest march in Aotearoa, New Zealand, starting in the north of the country. They're marching to Waitangi, where tomorrow the country will mark Waitangi Day, the day 140 years ago that the Treaty of Waitangi was signed. But this year's celebrations are expected to be contentious, as a new government moves to reinterpret the principles of the Waitangi Treaty and roll back Māori reforms. It's a situation that has also affected Pacific Island community there. So joining us this morning to talk more on this matter is well-known Tongan community leader Pakilau Manasilua. With that I say, Malo e tauma e bongbongini and tēnā koe Pakilau. Tēnā koe e hoa. Good to see you again. Malo e lau mali ahoe ki malele ka inga tonga kotoa pē e ope. Oh, thank you very much. It is great to uh, catch up with you again, Bucky Lau, because this is, of course, as I said, it's going to be quite contentious. But uh, firstly, uh, can you confirm, are you actually there at Waitangi right now? And if so, what's the atmosphere like? I will be on the road very shortly, uh, Eggy. We're heading down 
time with a delegation from Auckland, but we're here in Manukau, South Auckland, at the Dewdrop uh, Centre to do a cover ceremony for Indigenous women in industry uh, and Tangata Whenua who are having a big hui here in South Auckland and then heading up to Waitangi. So we've got a delegation here, about 200 uh, women leaders from all over the world, Indigenous women are gathering in South Auckland and we're opening with a cover ceremony to welcome them and then we're heading to Waitangi straight after from here. Beautiful. And as we know, Pacific um, communities, we're well aware of what it is when we meet together, if we are going to do a hui or uh, a meeting like Waitangi. I'm wondering from the Pacific community yourself, besides yourself, who are you expecting from our community to be at Waitangi? I think there will be a strong delegation of Pacifica and uh, one of our Manamoana leaders uh, is called a hikoi. Uh, from all the Pacific, the Tangata Moana, to be there. Tehiwi has called that, and we will be gathering there at the dawn uh, opening at 5 in the morning uh, tomorrow morning. So we, we're heading out there to time it for that. Um, also, Dr. Carlo Amila will be there. She's speaking on the panel today, actually, the leader for Mana Moana. There'll be a strong contingent from Mana Moana, which is part of the leadership program that we've developed here in Aotearoa, and Carlo Amila wrote that uh, document and program to support um, uh, Mana and Tangata Whenua here in Aotearoa. So we're very proud to be part of that. Uh, Pakilo, I know you mentioned there is going to be, or there has been, hikois, marches, protests for as long as we've known uh, since the treaty. But often the government of the day have not really had the best reception uh, when they attend Waitangi. Do you think that's going to be the case for this year? I think a lot of attention goes to those isolated incidents that we've, you know, you and I have seen over the years here in Aotearoa. And unfortunately, that tends to get all the attention. But um, most of the corridor, the talanoa, the, the speeches that are made on the paipai are actually quite, um, you know, engaging. Sure, there'll be a little bit of heat behind it because of what's happened with the um, new government and their uh, proposal to, to to look at the principles of the treaty and, and the proposed changes to it. And of course, that's going to spark some contention, but I think there'll be some robust debate, which is what the, the day is about, have robust debate, uh, but I don't think there'll be trouble. People who are going there are going there for the positivity. Of course, they will challenge, but that's what uh, that's what uh, the day is all about, to, to get the um, conversations flowing. Mm. Before we get to sort of wh- why this would affect our Pacifica community and also on the uh, varied interpretations of the treaty, I do want to ask, though, do you think that the government has probably maybe at least underestimated the unity of its First Nations people there? Absolutely, absolutely. Look, um, I've never seen Māori uh, galvanised in solidarity like this since the foreshore and seabed um, legislation, uh, you know, issue, which was a, a few, uh, you know, maybe a decade or so ago. And this is the first time where I've seen in a long time Māori coming together as one united voice to stand and uh, present their case to the to the government that they're not happy. And so, you know, I think um, people will sit up and listen, which is what the the hikoi and the kōrero and the protest and the um, corridor will be about on the paipai, uh, out on the marae. Uh, but I think it'll be a beautiful event. Uh, the weather looks like it's going to hold out. And yeah, we're looking forward to it. Mm, thank you for that. So if you're just tuning in, we are speaking to uh, Tongan Community Leader Pakilao Manaselua on really the effects of maybe the Pacific community within celebrating Waitangi and what is happening back in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, varied interpretations, again, uh, Pakilao, of the treaty. We do realise that current New Zealand coalition government, they want to redefine the principles of te tiriti or Waitangi. Uh, because of that, has this been perceived as racism? 
I think it has. You know, some quarter of uh, the uh, New Zealand populace are uh, enlightened and have advanced enough in their thinking to know the real history of Aotearoa, where there were two uh, versions of the, of Te Tiriti and the Treaty of Waitangi, the English and, and Te Reo Māori version. The Te Reo Māori version states very clearly that Māori did not cede sovereignty, whereas the English version says it does. So that's, at the end of the day, the big contention. And so what Māori want to do is to assert their um, their right as Tangata Whenua, the First Nations people of Aotearoa, that they never ceded sovereignty. They wanted to leave, live together with uh, Pākehā and those people who were here nearly 200 years ago to help them govern themselves, but they never ceded their own sovereignty. They want, they needed their own tangatiratanga to be able to run their own affairs, which is exactly what we would expect. What nation would voluntarily say, here, you come and run government and you you, you control us? It doesn't make sense. So that's the big contention. And I think um, as Pacifica people, we should stand together with our cousins, our Maori people, who because they came from the Moana. They're part of us and we're a part of them. And often we talk about the, you know, the the real dissatisfaction around the outcomes for our Maori cousins in regards to health education, housing. For decades on decades, have we been talking about, uh, you know, stolen land? So, what impact do you think if there was to be any change to the principles of Te Tiriti o Waitangi? What impact will it have on Maori? Well, the, the, the negative impacts we can see from just the, the statistics, the data doesn't lie. You know, um, unfortunately, Maori occupy the lowest rungs of the ladder for the poor socioeconomic indicators for, as you've already mentioned, and so do Pasifika. You know, so, so our people in Maori, we share the similar uh, challenges here in Aotearoa. However, you know, we need to also look at opportunities to advance ourselves, um, fight the injustices, look at equity, but also advance ourselves. Let's look at how can we build our wealth here in this country? How do we work together with the system to make it work for us? Um, you know, the treaty at the end of the day was not about editing the treaty. It's about honouring the treaty. So to, today, this conversation is about uh, what this government wants to do. I think if they're smart, they'd leave it alone because it's the only legal document that justifies why they're here in the first place. If they say it's no longer valid or they make changes to it, Māori have a a, 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 a righteous right to be um, not happy about that because this is the document that um, allowed others who came from other areas to settle here in Aotearoa. And Māori, out of their own goodwill, and Aroha said, yeah, let's live together, but we will control our own destiny. You look after your own. Mm. I mean, I have read quite a bit, and it says uh, in one article, a warning has been issued from iwi leaders. It says, be warned, trying to interfere with te tiriti o Waitangi is an abomination. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's strongly worded, and I, and I totally agree. Look, um, Māori have lost um, millions of hectares of their land, their land, you know, and there's no, you know, the, everyone knows this This was their land. They discovered Aotearoa. They have a right as the First Nations people to the land. There were land confiscations. Uh, there were all sorts of uh, raupatu where they've lost um, so much of the economic wealth. However, whatever little they have, they fought for. You know, and um, they fought through the courts, the Waitangi Land uh, Tribunal. They fought, even physically fought in the 1800s through the Waikato Land Wars. You know, there were a whole bunch of um, transactions that were had that were not probably right because um, the English settlers at the time used the law that was on, you know, their law 
to take take land that was not theirs. So Māori have a righteous right to be up at arms in terms of um, being angry at what's happened. Now, that anger doesn't mean that it manifests into violence or anything like that. No, it's it's anger, righteous anger, to express their discontent at this government. And that's what they're doing at Waitangi. Waitangi is about kōrero, talanoa, dialogue. And that's what the, the iwi have gathered. And Tainui, the kingitanga, the, the Māori king, for the first time in a long time, has gone to, to the far north with a huge delegation of 500 of his own Tainui iwi to be in the north. And other iwi, other leaders have all gathered there. So it's a massive event. And, we're, you know, we're there to just raise the flag and let Māori know that Pacific are there alongside them as our cousins, as our tuakana, to, to be at their side. Yeah, and you speak on that as Tangata Moana, you know, our Pacific community. Pakila, what is our role as uh, Pacifica when it comes to Te Tiriti? And because I know you've spoken about honouring the treaty, but how how practical can that be for us as the Pacific community? Well, we come under Article 3 of Te Tiriti, you know. Um, so we are part of, we're Tangata Tiriti. You know, the only uh, legal uh, redress that we have to be here is from the, the the treaty. You know, aside from the fact we're related to Māori, but we're still manuhiri here. We're guests and visitors here. Let's put that aside. You know, Māori know that we are cousins. You know, but if we're looking at the legal framework of citizenship here, it's framed around tetiriti. You have two parties. You have the Crown and you have the Tangata Whenua. So we come under the, the tetiriti principles of the Crown as citizens here under Article 3. So we need to be able to Make sure we know our place. So we're not Tangata Whenua, we're Tangata Moana. We, we, on the Pacific Ocean, that's our ocean, Māori are tehina to us. They are teina on the ocean. Here on their land, they are the older brother. They're the tuakana. We are the teina on their land. So that, to me, is very important. Sometimes we forget and we, we tend to um, side with the other fellas and forget our cousins. I think that's wrong. You know, we have a moral obligation to stand side by side with Māori and say, look, we're here with you. Cousins, we'll do what we have to do and we'll do what we can to support you. And I know that's exactly what you're going to be going to do uh, this afternoon, Pakilao, uh, and we just really appreciate all the efforts that you are doing on behalf of our Pacific community, standing in solidarity with uh, Te Tiriti or Waitangi. But we just want to say thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Aggie. Great to talk to you again. It's like old times again. But <laughs> off keep up the great work there in, out, uh, in Australia and off to all of our communities and our people there in uh, Australia. That, of course, is Tongan community leader, Pakilao Manase Lua. Time to take a look back at our main story today. Recapping speculation mounts as to whether Tuvalu will switch diplomatic ties from Taiwan to China following the election. But one former Prime Minister, Enele Sopoanga, is adamant that won't happen. You can read my lips. I will not make any slightest change. There is no need even to look at that issue right now. Former Prime Minister Enele Sopoanga. Well, I'll be back same time at 6am PNG time tomorrow. But again, we're here this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next. Coming up after that, it is Nisha Daily. Until next time, I'm Aggie Dubol, and you've been tuning into Pacific Beat.